something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. Time is a flat circle. Everything we have done or will do, we will do over and over and over again, forever. You may recognize that quote from the HBO series True Detective. The idea in that phrase actually originated with philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. But the notion that we all move through cycles, always spinning but never progressing, is much older. Some occultists, mystics, and magicians would say that you are trapped in an endless circuit, that you can never escape your birth, life, sickness, ignorance, pain, or ultimately death. But according to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, you can break the cycle. You just have to die. Your death doesn't have to be literal. It's a matter of transforming your consciousness and mastering your will through study. When you're reborn, you can connect with something immortal, powerful, beyond the human realms entirely. All it takes is study, resolve, a bit of divine intervention, and a dash of magic. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a society of mystics that was founded in the 1880s. They combined numerous philosophies, such as the Jewish Kabbalah, Christian mysticism, Rosicrucian magic, and Freemasonry, into a magical spiritual system all their own. This week, we'll explore how the Golden Dawn was founded. We'll meet the three colorful men who allegedly unearthed ancient secrets and learn how their petty battles for power drove members away. Next week, we'll look at the new chapters that sprung up after the Golden Dawn formally disbanded. We'll explore the differing and sometimes contradictory claims the modern groups make. And we'll determine whether the Hermetic Order is the only thing standing between humanity and eternal doom. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The late 1800s were a time of spiritual growth and exploration. 
people flocked to mystical secret societies during what has been called the Golden Age of Fraternalism. In the United States, the Freemasons boasted five and a half million active members. Over 20% of American men belonged to some kind of clandestine organization in 1896. In Europe, the Freemasons' membership swelled. Another mystical order, the Rosicrucians, experienced a renaissance as new recruits joined to learn secret, hidden magic. The Rosicrucians promised to teach initiates magical spells, timeless wisdom, and alchemy, or the transformation of lead into gold. This alchemy was more likely metaphorical than literal. It was a form of spiritual self-development, and would-be disciples ate it up. Occultism and spiritualism blossomed across the Western world. We could put the sudden explosion in spiritual thought in a historical context. The Industrial Revolution had transformed society, creating more free time for people in the upper classes to think about their religious beliefs. In addition, the growing interest in the occult may have been a backlash against Christianity, or it could have been a response to the secular culture of the Victorian era, which emphasized science, technology, reason, and human evolution. Many people felt a desire to understand the world in spiritual terms. But some mystics, possibly including members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, would say that the 19th century marked the dawning of a new age. The time had come for hidden mysteries to be revealed. Whether they were driven by the stars or responding to predictable historical forces, three men became friends sometime in the late 1800s. They were all Freemasons and familiar with the mystical movements of Rosicrucianism, Theosophy, and Kabbalah. They probably met through one of those societies. Dr. William Robert Woodman practiced medicine in London. Besides Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, he also dabbled in Kabbalah and other mystical philosophies. He was the oldest of the three men, and near retirement by the time the order began. Dr. William Wynne Westcott held a prestigious job as coroner in London. Westcott had also studied Kabbalah. Of the three, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers was certainly the most colorful. He was a vegetarian and a women's rights activist with a love of theatrical rituals. He also allegedly believed he was descended from ancient Scottish lords, and some thought he was the reincarnation of the Scottish wizard king, James VI. Mathers regularly wore traditional Scottish garb while he practiced divination or scrying, magical rituals that supposedly revealed hidden knowledge to him. Although they came from different backgrounds, Woodman, Westcott, and Mathers had one thing in common. They were hungry for mystical knowledge, and they didn't feel like the Freemasons, Rosicrucians, Theosophists, or Spiritualists offered what they needed. While Theosophy, another popular European and American occult movement of the era, appropriated its ideas from Hindu and Buddhist belief systems, Woodman, Westcott, and Mathers wanted to found a mystical society built mostly on Western influences. Together, they agreed to establish a new organization that reflected their own interests. It would combine the best features of Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Kabbalah, Christianity, and also draw on Egyptian and ancient Greek magic. The new order would offer the tools and the philosophies they needed to uncover spiritual truths. 
According to the order, fate intervened on their behalf in 1886. Allegedly, that year a Freemason named Reverend A.F.A. Woodford gave an ancient Masonic manuscript to Dr. Westcott. It was written in code, and for years, maybe centuries, nobody had been able to decipher it. But Woodford knew that Westcott had studied ciphers, and he might have some insight into the message's contents. Sure enough, Westcott translated the letter the next year and discovered it contained the fragments of an ancient ritual. It was complicated and difficult to understand, and Westcott recruited Mathers and Woodman to help him study the so-called cipher manuscript. After extensive review, the trio determined that the rituals had been part of an ancient, forgotten society, and they used these as the basis for the Golden Dawn. It had admitted both men and women, and seemed to be associated with powerful magic in some way. Unfortunately, the manuscript was incomplete. Its full text had been lost to time, but Westcott, Mathers, and Woodman knew enough about magical ceremonies that they could deduce the missing pieces. The rite seemed to incorporate symbolism from Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, Christian mysticism, and the Jewish Kabbalah, alchemy, magic, and astrology. Incidentally, Mathers, Westcott, and Woodman were all well-versed in all those traditions. They managed to reverse-engineer much of the ancient ceremony by drawing on their knowledge. It still wasn't clear what the ritual was, but the interpreters suspected it was deeply important they figure it out. The cipher manuscript also included a name, Anna Sprengel, and an address. Westcott didn't know who she was, but he wrote a letter. He was astonished to receive a reply from Anna as she introduced herself as a powerful mystic and a member of the Golden Dawn, which still practiced in secret after all these years. Once, the mystical order had been incredibly powerful and far-reaching, but its activities were hidden and its wisdom was in danger of being lost. Now, it seemed, Anna was one of the only remaining practitioners. She encouraged Westcott to found a new temple in London and even passed along some closely guarded society secrets. She gave the three men permission to lead the group and gave Westcott the authority to create new rituals. That way, the Golden Dawn might be reborn under his leadership. Westcott received the information in amazement. It was as if the cipher's manuscript's long-dead original writers had foreseen Anna's birth and life, and they'd prophetically given Westcott the tools to connect with her. Fate had intervened so that the Golden Dawn could be resurrected. But most historians are skeptical of that account. They consider it more likely that Dr. Westcott or another member of the Freemasons forged the cipher manuscript. As for Anna Sprengel, there's no third-party verification that a woman with that name ever lived. She, too, might have been fabricated to add a sense of authenticity to Westcott's, Mathers, and Woodman's new society. However it was founded, London's Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was established in the 1880s. Officially, the order began in 1888. Originally, the Golden Dawn began as more of a school than a secret society. Any spiritual wisdom seeker, male or female, could join. Initiates had access to a library of texts and meetings with other mystics to practice rituals and discuss philosophies. All Western schools of thought were welcome. 
All areas of study were legitimate. All religions were tolerated. All well-reasoned conclusions would be considered. Except Mathers, Woodman, and Westcott weren't quite as open-minded as they let on. They believed in one truth that their students should discover. All initiates should conclude that humanity was meant to rule creation with justice and wisdom. They'd resist the spirits of evil and darkness, which seek to entrap mankind through vice, illness, and death. They'd open their minds to the guidance of mystical good spirits and become magical warriors for righteousness. Anyone who unlocked the truth, or at least the founder's version of it, was permitted to join a secret inner circle, the Second Order. Officially, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn had three orders. The first, the Outer Order, included most members. In 1888, it had 32 students, but less than a decade later, more than 300 people belonged to the First Order. It was a place for learning, questioning, and exploration. The Inner, or Second Order, originally included only Mathers, Woodman, and Westcott, but when their students reached the appropriate conclusions about the true nature of the universe and magic, they were eventually initiated as well. Members of the Second Order knew their beliefs were correct because they were guided by those in the elite Third Order, also called the Secret Chiefs. These chiefs were inhuman beings of wisdom and magic, spirits who deigned to share their knowledge with members of the Hermetic Order. Of course, these immaterial spirits only ever spoke to people in the Second Order, which means that if Mathers, Woodman, or Westcott claimed that they'd received a divine revelation, nobody could disprove the assertion. In essence, that meant that the Founders ruled the Order, unquestioned. Mathers, Woodman, and Westcott held absolute power. Nobody could challenge their authority other than themselves. And that unchecked dominion laid the groundwork for manipulation and abuse. Next, we'll explore the Golden Dawn's beliefs, symbols, and arcane initiation rites. Now, back to the story. In the late 1880s, William Woodman, S.L. Mathers, and William Westcott founded the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. They claimed the society was based around a Masonic document that Westcott allegedly translated. The cipher manuscript served as the foundation for the mystical school, which offered ancient magic secrets to its members. From the outside, it seemed the founders were merely fraudsters. They mixed and matched various rituals and belief systems they were already familiar with and then tried to pass them off as something new. And that's quite possible especially given the allegations that Mathers forged the cipher manuscript. But he would probably tell you you're getting cause and effect confused. The Golden Dawn didn't borrow from other religions. Those other faiths were reflections of the ancient truths that the Order finally consolidated. The Golden Dawn believes that every person must die and be reborn. An initiate's life includes periods of spiritual progression and recession, and perhaps the world follows a cycle of its own. Just as autumn gives way to winter, which in turn becomes spring, magic and mysticism awaken and slumber for centuries at a time. The ancient Egyptians were thought to be the first people to uncover the true nature of the universe. They learned that it's full of good and evil spirits. 
the world is always in a delicate balance between the forces of light and those of darkness. But humanity has the power to tip the scales. If a person commits to intensive learning and is able to transform their consciousness, they can perform magic. Any person, male or female, can see the future, turn invisible at will, transform lead into gold, or speak to spirits. Then they can use that power for knowledge, justice, and peace. Thousands of years ago, three good spirits taught the ancient Egyptians how to access these powers. In return, the people worshipped the spirits as gods. The first was called Isis, the goddess of magic. Her husband and brother, Osiris, was the god of wheat and wine. Osiris was murdered, but Isis cast a spell to resurrect him. From that point onward, he was also the god of the dead. His killer, Set, or Seth, was the god of chaos and destruction, but he was also a force for good. The Egyptians understood that he was an important part of the cycle of life and death. Without Set, there could be no resurrection or transformation. For generations, Egyptians thrived under Isis, Osiris, and Set's teachings. But all good things must end. When the Egyptian empire fell, their secrets were scattered to the winds, but not entirely lost. Ancient Greeks retained the legends about Isis, Osiris, and Set, but they renamed the gods Demeter, Dionysius, and Typhon. Later, the Christians built a belief system around the death and resurrection of another divine figure associated with bread and wine. Likewise, Jewish mystics called Kabbalists hid mystical truth within their theology, as did practitioners of astrology, alchemy, and various forms of paganism. So when Mathers, Woodman, and Westcott established the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, they weren't just repackaging the practices they already knew and liked, they were winnowing the kernels of truth from hundreds of belief systems, recombining them into their proper form. Given its many influences, the Golden Dawn incorporated thousands of stories, symbols, and metaphors into their doctrines. Their highly complicated codes are so complex, initiates spend as much time learning to interpret them as they do studying philosophy or practicing magic. For example, the Golden Dawn designed their own modern tarot cards with added correspondences from Kabbalah and astrology. Tarot refers to a deck of 78 cards, each of which contains a symbolically powerful combination of images and numbers. Tarot is used for divination about the future and as a tool for self-awareness. Every tarot card can be interpreted in numerous ways, and they can be combined with one another to produce even more complicated messages. Every symbol in the Golden Dawn corresponds to one of the four elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. Those, in turn, are connected to the four cardinal directions. Those have symbolic resonance with Hebrew letters, planets and zodiac signs, certain colors, and parts of the body. Even your fingers and thumb have meaning. If I give you a thumbs-up sign, it symbolizes the spirit. And if I flashed you the middle finger, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just signifying the earth. I'm sure. In short, every image you could possibly imagine has layers upon layers of hermetic meaning. These are all incorporated into a powerful symbolic system called the Tree of Life. 
The Tree of Life comes from Kabbalah and is a complex diagram comprised of circles arranged in a hexagram. They're connected by a series of intersecting lines. Scattered throughout are zodiac symbols, Hebrew letters, Arabic numbers, and English captions like Pillar of Mercy or Pillar of Severity. A serpent wielding a Christian cross weaves through the configuration. As for what all of that means, we couldn't even begin to tell you. We do know that the Tree of Life is a sort of roadmap for members of the Golden Dawn. The circles and the lines that connect them form 22 points, which correspond to 22 Hebrew letters, 22 angels, 22 major tarot cards, and 22 positions within the order. Initiates start at the lowest point of the hexagram, contemplating the society's most accessible mysteries. As they gain knowledge and ascend to higher positions within the order, the messages of the Tree of Life become clearer. And if all that sounds like too much to keep track of, you're not alone. Some members could have spent a lifetime in the Golden Dawn without ever reaching the higher levels. They'd probably tell you that the real value came in the searching and the seeking, that questions are more important than answers. And if you were willing to become such a knowledge seeker yourself, you'd encounter the rich, multi-layered symbolism on your very first day with the Order, during your initiation ceremony. You enter the temple, where you'll spend your life studying. You approach a member and tell them you desire to join the Order. That member quizzes you about your motives and your willingness to learn. Once they're satisfied with your answers, they lead you into an antechamber. The member orders you to strip naked, which you do. Then they blindfold you and leave you alone. You can't tell if anyone else is in the room. You can't hear anything. The blindfold is heavy, and you can't see anything either. You hold your hands in front of you and take a cautious step forward. Then another. It's impossible to gauge how long you spend fumbling about. But finally, your hand touches something familiar. Smooth wood and a round handle. A door. You knock, but nobody answers. Inside, you hear someone shout, Hey Kos, hey Kos, este bebeloi. It's a Greek phrase that means, Be gone, be gone, you profane ones. You know that on the other side of the door, the order members are purifying a great hall on your behalf. But first, you have to wait. You know that the initiation ceremony involves a lot of ritual. Inside, the members of the Golden Dawn exchange symbols and sacred words. They anoint the walls and honor the spirits of the four cardinal directions. They speak secret spells so the gods might bestow their blessing upon you. Through it all, you must exercise patience, standing outside in silence. Finally, the door swings open, but you still cannot enter. You knock on the door again. Someone announces, the candidate seeks for entrance. Another voice responds, giving you permission to step inside. Of course, you can't see who's speaking, but you know the ceremony is overseen by a member of the Second Order, called the Hierophant. As you set foot inside the hall, the Hierophant bestows upon you a new name, a powerful, magical name. 
In succession, three other members speak. It sounds like they're standing near you. They say, Inheritor of a dying world, arise and enter the darkness. The mother of darkness hath blinded him with her hair. The father of darkness hath hidden him under his wings. The Hierophant ends the chant, saying, His limbs are still weary from the wars which were in heaven. Before the ceremony can proceed, you must be sanctified. Someone draws a wet cross on your forehead. They say, I purify thee with water. You catch a whiff of sweet-smelling smoke, as though someone's waving a burning censer near you. They say, I consecrate thee with fire. Hands clasp your arms and someone guides you forward. Once you reach your destination, the Hierophant asks, Inheritor of a dying world, why seekest thou to enter our sacred hall? Why seekest thou admission to our order? But you can't answer for yourself. One of your companions says, My soul wanders in darkness and seeks the light of the hidden knowledge, and I believe that in this order, knowledge of that light may be obtained. The Hierophant then demands an oath. They ask if you're willing to keep the Order's teachings a secret. You reply, I am. Then you must swear to use your powers for good, to advance justice and uphold the spiritual law. You swear, I am ready. The Hierophant orders you to kneel. You do so with the help of your companions. Then the Hierophant leads you in a lengthy vow. Once more, you promise to keep the Order's teachings a secret, including the details of your initiation ceremony and any knowledge you may have encountered before you joined. You swear to never write down any teachings. You vow not to do anything that might lower your inhibitions and make you blurt out hidden knowledge to the uninitiated. You also resolve to keep an open mind. You'll see great works that few people have ever seen before. You can only understand them if you set aside preconceived notions. As you finish your oath, you feel something cool and flat press against the nape of your neck. You realize that one of the officials is holding a blade to your back. Although it's turned so the point is away from you, you're afraid to move. But you have to, because the Hierophant orders you to rise. Two sets of hands grab your arms and haul you to your feet. The Hierophant orders you to walk to the northern side of the room, which represents forgetfulness, ignorance, and worldly distractions. Someone guides you to what you assume is the northern wall. Once everyone is assembled, an official announces, Unpurified and unconsecrated, thou canst not enter the path of the West. Once again, you're purified with water and censer smoke. Then another official says, Child of Earth, twice purified and twice consecrated, thou mayst approach the gateway of the West. The leaders drag you across the hall. While you walk, someone rips your blindfold off. For the briefest of moments, you glimpse the room. Everyone wears ancient Egyptian clothes and headdresses. The hall is painted with colorful geometric shapes and symbols. Before you can take it in, they blindfold you once more. The guide stops you, and you assume you've reached the western wall. There, someone says, 
Thou canst not pass by me, saith the guardian of the West, unless thou canst tell me my name. You don't know their name, but another order member answers on your behalf. Darkness is thy name, thou great one of the paths of the shades. The leader lets you pass, and you repeat the same ritual on the eastern wall. Again, you are purified. Again, your blindfold is momentarily removed and then replaced. And again, a leader identifies a guardian. Light dawning in darkness is thy name, the light of a golden day. Finally, the order members bring you back to the center of the room. Now that you've had a chance to look around, you know you're probably near the Hierophant's altar. The Hierophant speaks a blessing over you, then gives a lengthy speech about the symbolic meaning of the ritual. There's a lot to take in, but you get the gist of it. For all your life, you've been stumbling around in blind ignorance, just as you were literally blindfolded and left to find your own way to the hall. Now, with the holy guidance of the gods and the golden dawn, you can open your eyes to see the truth. Once again, they remove the blindfold, and this time, they don't put it back. You blink in astonishment, trying to take everything in. The officials dressed like Egyptian gods, the altar which holds bread, salt, wine, and a rose, the walls adorned with elaborate symbols. One more time, the leaders consecrate and purify you with water and smoke. Finally, the Hierophant tells you two key phrases that will change your life. The first is the grand word, Harparkrat. The Hierophant says that this is the Egyptian name for the god of silence. You must keep it in your heart and remember your oath of secrecy. Next, he tells you a password. It changes twice a year, and it's the way that members of the Golden Dawn recognize one another. After another lengthy lecture about the ritual's symbolic meanings, one of the leaders takes you to a table. They pour a vial of red liquid into a bowl of water and warn, if the oath be forgotten and the solemn pledge broken, then that what is secret shall be revealed, even as this pure fluid reveals the semblance of blood. With this final warning, the leaders of the Golden Dawn praise the four spirits of the four cardinal directions. They exchange secret symbols and purify the hall with water and smoke. You don't fully understand what their gestures mean, but you know that someday you'll learn. At the altar, several second-order members ritualistically smell the sacred rose, feel the warmth from the burning lamp, eat the bread and salt, and drink the wine. You watch the ceremony, reflecting on what each element might symbolize. At last, an official leads you from the chamber in silence, but you can barely hold your tongue as excitement thrums through you. Now you're officially a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The universe's secrets lie before you. As you ascend through the organization and attain new knowledge, you'll undergo more initiation ceremonies like this one. The symbols and dialogue will change, but the broad strokes, anointing, oaths, and vows of secrecy will remain the same. Each ritual represents a new step forward in your life, an opportunity of growth and self-discovery. But your mystical journey may end as soon as it begins, because the Golden Dawn is about to tear itself apart, all because of a petty power struggle between its founders and a vicious twist of fate.
up next, the order's leaders turn on one another. Now, back to the story. Around 1888, William Woodman, S.L. Mathers, and William Westcott founded the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a mystical society that claimed to teach ordinary people magic. Adherents could then use their powers in the great conflict between good and evil. The first chapter of the Golden Dawn was established in London, England, but around 1890, new temples opened throughout Europe. Officially, they were all branches of the central organization, but the numerous locations soon grew to represent a bigger rift within the order's leadership. The trouble began in 1891, when William Woodman died. After his passing, Mathers and Westcott began squabbling over control of the order, Maybe tensions had always existed, and Woodman had moderated them while he was alive. Or perhaps the conflicts arose because his death tipped the Founders' equilibrium. Whatever the reason, Westcott and Mathers started to fight frequently in the 1890s. In part, their conflict stemmed from personality clashes. Mathers was a perfectionist and a bit of a control freak. He developed new requirements that Golden Dawn members had to meet before they could ascend to a new level. But the rules were so stringent, many students couldn't meet Mather's standards. As their education stalled, many lost interest and left the order. Mather's also grew increasingly erratic. He spent most of his time studying and translating ancient texts and neglected his duties to the Hermetic Order. He became obsessed with the ancient Egyptian pantheon, and renovated his home to make it look more like an Egyptian temple. All the while, he relied on wealthy Golden Dawn members to financially support him, as his spending outpaced his income. In 1892, Mathers moved to Paris because he couldn't afford to live in London anymore. He established a Paris chapter of the order, but ruled it like it was his own personal social club. He ignored Westcott's rules, and tensions between them heightened. Another flashpoint centered on a new initiate, an infamous occultist named Aleister Crowley. We discuss Crowley in more depth in our episodes on Ordo Templi Orientis, but all you need to know is that Crowley was famous for two things, his passion for the occult and his attention-seeking theatricality. In the late 1890s, Crowley approached the London chapter inquiring as to how he could become a member. The leaders of the Second Order distrusted him and turned him away. But S.L. Mathers was intrigued by Crowley and eagerly initiated him into the Paris chapter. Always eager to stir the pot, Crowley wasn't shy about rubbing his membership in the faces of the London leaders, men like William Westcott. Shortly after his initiation, Crowley showed up at the front doors to the London chapter, uninvited. Several members, including poet William Butler Yeats, tried to block the entrance so he couldn't get in. The ensuing skirmish only ended when Yeats and the other initiates pushed Crowley down the stairs. But Crowley couldn't be dissuaded that easily. Nursing his grudge, he openly violated the order's rules. He claimed that he'd summoned evil demons, a practice that was forbidden in the Golden Dawn. He even published several sacred texts, revealing the Order's secrets to the public. 
Crowley and Mathers allegedly vented their frustrations with each other on the magical plane. According to accounts, Mathers directed negative magical energies toward Crowley to make him sick. His ally, Yates, supposedly dispatched a vampire to suck Crowley's blood. In return, Crowley dispatched 49 demons to psychically attack Mathers. That may sound silly or made up, but the challenges to Mathers' authority were very real. He could feel his control over the Golden Dawn slipping away. While Westcott had stepped back from his leadership role, those who took his place blamed Mathers for initiating Crowley and for flouting their decrees. Mathers countered that he was above reproach. He'd been initiated into the Third Order, the inner circle occupied only by holy spiritual beings. And, as we noted before, only the members of the Second Order could speak with the spiritual chiefs. Other initiates in the Golden Dawn had no way to disprove Mather's claim. The conflict between Mathers and Westcott came to a head in 1897. Supposedly, after a night out in London, Westcott left some papers behind in a cab. The documents included several manuscripts pertaining to the order, and they were all clearly labeled with his full name and address. So when the cab driver handed the paperwork over to the authorities, they knew exactly who it belonged to. Westcott had a high-profile job as the coroner for the northeast of London. Membership in a society of sorcerers was considered embarrassing, and according to one story, the Crown gave Westcott a choice resign from his position or leave the order. He chose his career and withdrew from the Golden Dawn. Later, Westcott reportedly claimed that he was too careful to leave such sensitive paperwork in a cab. Someone must have planted it there. Someone like Mathers. Westcott believed that Mathers had framed him, knowing he'd finally become the undisputed head of the order after his resignation. It's hard to tell who really left the papers in the cab, or if this event even happened. Some sources speculate that Westcott resigned because his followers realized that the cipher manuscript was forged. But the petty interpersonal conflicts didn't do much for the Order's reputation. It was hard to persuade an initiate that the society offered timeless mystical secrets when the leadership seemed to be embroiled in earthly concerns. Their membership declined. But the final blow came at the turn of the century. A pair of con artists who called themselves Mr. and Mrs. Horos, but were actually Frank and Editha Jackson, joined the Paris chapter. Editha posed as Anna Sprengel, the alleged mystic who was referenced in the Order's founding cipher documents. It's hard to say why Mathers believed her. Perhaps he had nothing to do with the alleged forgery and didn't know Anna was fiction. Maybe he was so caught up in mysticism, he'd become irrational. Either way, Editha convinced Mathers that she really was Anna Sprangle. Then, she and Frank borrowed several valuable order texts. But they never returned the documents. They immediately relocated to London to set up their own occult society. Soon after, the pair were arrested for sexual assault and theft. Police seized their property, and the Order's secret documents were soon published alongside press coverage of the Jacksons' trial. 
Frank and Editha Jackson were never officially affiliated with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Mathers had no idea what they were doing. He was their ignorant dupe. But the bad PR around their scams and sexual assaults still shamed the order. One by one, the various chapters shut down or distanced themselves from the London branch. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was essentially defunct, other than a small handful of scattered splinter chapters. But their philosophies didn't die with them. This was just the next phase of the Great Cycle, a period of spiritual darkness that would give way to another era of enlightenment. Like Osiris or Dionysius, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was destined to be reborn. And in the mid-20th century, an initiate, a cult scholar and mystic named Israel Rigardi published everything he'd learned during his time with the Order. His collected works were called The Golden Dawn, and they chronicled the Hermetic teachings, rituals, and philosophies. Rigardi's books were very influential for 20th century occult groups, and yet the Golden Dawn itself had all but disappeared. Perhaps the stars weren't aligned yet. Finally, in 1982, Rigardi reestablished the order and initiated the first members of the new Hermetic generation. Soon, new chapters appeared to carry on the traditions. Today, dozens of Hermetic orders exist throughout the world. Some claim to be direct continuations of the original Golden Dawn, while others admit that they're based primarily on Rigardi's teachings. Some, like the Open Source Order of the Golden Dawn, freely offer their mystical knowledge to any who ask for it. Others, like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn Alpha Omega Rosicrucian Mystery School, allegedly screen initiates for magical ability and only accept the best of the best. According to their website, the Alpha Omega School is especially exclusive because the stakes are higher than ever. It's no longer enough for devotees to work magic and subtly tip the balance of the universe toward good. In the past century, evil gained a lot of ground. They're fighting the battle between darkness and light. And if disciples don't commit to the Order's teachings, humanity will be doomed to eternal slavery, ignorance, and brainwashing. We need the Golden Dawn, or the darkness will win. And if we let up in the battle, even for a moment, we'll all be lost forever. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode on the Golden Dawn's modern incarnations. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all of the podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.